Well, um, glad to see you here. And we are four weeks uh, into our series on one another in soul care. We have about four weeks to go. So we're kind of at, at, at a hinge here. And we covered the model, the introduction and the model, basically. And, and now for the next four weeks, Lord willing, we'll be unpacking examples. We began with one at the end of last, well, at the end of last week. And I hope you found it uh, uh, interesting and valuable. We're not going to spend much time on review, but basically we've gone through the three trees model. And uh, we uh, have gone through the different elements, and you had in your handout last week, if anyone didn't get one, please ask for them, uh, the, basically uh, the outline, and it was based on Psalm 1, 1 through 3, Jeremiah 17, and Je- Jesus himself in John 7 finishes the third tree. He is the source of life. He is our life for believers. He is the source of living water, and out from him we become streams of living water, out from us. So that which we receive overflows in grace. So thank you, brother, talking about uh, this morning about the church and pride because uh, Jesus intends in us to make uh, us visible representations of the gospel. I was listening to a message by Glenn Shrivener, and he says, you know, it was a bad day, and your chart was right, but way back in the 15th century, uh, one uh, believer back there, I think it was, I uh, can't remember his name now, so, you know, it was a really, really bad day. Um, and he said, what we have to do as Christians is, is live before people, the living Christ, so much that they want Christianity to be true. And then show them that it is. And that's our call today as it was in their day as well. So we, we've done that model, but basically what we're going to do is unpack it in different examples. And each time kind of reinforcing it. I'm not going to say much about the... The, uh, the heat, the life events, the sun pictured at the top, the whole point of Psalm 1 and Jeremiah 17 and the examples that we gave. Remember the cup illustration and the Lassie illustration uh, of the, the, the drunk drivers killing Lassie, right? You, it was gross, I know, I know. But anyway, you went through those examples. Uh, the whole point here is that the heat happens to Christians and non-Christians and they happen to everybody. And the heat doesn't determine what comes out of the heart. It just occasions whatever's in the heart to come out. One has fruit, the other one has thorns. So the heat is not the cause. And the lie of Satan in the world that we live in says, I blame my circumstances and the people around me, and I blame God. Okay? And you can't do that. We're talking about one anothering. So we're basically talking about how in this world, the temptation of the world, flesh, and the devil is matched with the word, the church, and the spirit to bring us into sanctification on this side of the graph, into fruitfulness. Because in reality, if you take that cup, you know, sometimes the blows come and it's like anger that comes out. That's not becoming a Christian. Okay? Uh, we increasingly are to become Christ-like so that when the blows come... <laughs> Love, joy, peace, gentleness, kindness, self-control. Even when I had the opportunity in the weeks before to uh, talk about you know, the, the, the disciples in the boat and the storm, and just good old uh, Martha in the kitchen, right? So the, the dynamic of how Christ's all-sufficiency and all-importance changes your heart in those moments to be like him. So that 
she can know a patience. She can know a, 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 a kindness to her sister. She can see Christ's all-sufficiency and change her anger into a kindness. Into her impetuous running around the kitchen into a calm, patient... Well, you've got the idea, right? You remember that thing. But what we're doing is how do we one another in the body, bringing people when they're tempted to come this way and when you're, you're, you're threatened when the blows come, Last week, we talked about what is the dynamic in the heart when the blows come. And what we basically talked about, and thank you, Brother Eric, this morning, reading Romans chapter 1, because that's what we're talking about. People turn away from the living God, the Creator. They can only place their hopes for contentedness in this life on created things. So in our example last week of little four-year-old Timothy, his created thing that he made an idolatrous thing was the swimming pool, right? It's a good thing made an ultimate thing. How do you know you've made a good thing into an idol? Number one, you're willing to get it. Sin to get it. Sin to get it back. Or sin to keep from losing it. That was a little tiny Timmy, born a sinner. But these superficial idols, remember the number one example in the entire Bible and in most all societies and all people. Number one superficial idol is, I'm going to pull out a dollar bill real fast, money, right? So it can either, it's it's never an end to itself. And so what we looked at is we, we did superficial things, but Timmy's contentedness that he wanted the pool back and he couldn't understand, remember confusion wasn't a sin, um, uh, that kind of disappointment wasn't a sin, but he was willing to lie to get back in the pool. So he said, I only thought I heard thunder, right? So you remember the story. But the deep motivational drive is comfort, pleasure, security in a broad category, Approval of status and power of control. In power and control, we have meaning, justice, value, that, that kind of thing there. You'll understand those more as we unpack them. But l- simply last week, we said, listen, you know, these things, if you want the number one text to go to on an exegetical basis is Jesus' temptation. Then you understand what happened in the garden, what happened with Israel in the desert, what's happening in your life. Because you're in a desert... You have your spiritual Israel. You are the replacement. We, we are baptized into Christ, gone through the Red Sea. We are in the desert. We are all getting to heaven. Didn't we sing that, right? Okay, we're in a desert. And we're not there by accident. And we're not there alone. And one of the alonenesses is so that we have each other in the spirit and the word. So, um, just really, really fast here. Uh, gave out copies of, of that article. Seven pages that kind of summarize. Then if you want the whole book, I have at least one more copy here, if you'd like a copy, How People Change. Same authors, that's the whole book. That's the condensed version. That's the trailer, and that's the whole movie. You got the idea. Okay. So then I pointed out these two books last week because they kind of unpack these deep motivational sins. Uh, I did a caution about both authors. I'm grieved with where both of those are going, but both of these guys did fabulous jobs. Russell Moore and Tempted and Tried, unpacking the temptations of Christ. And those three deep motivational things just come to life there. And it means a lot to you because the way Jesus went through the desert for you is the model for you to 
face the same things in him. So uh, we also said, uh, I added two things <laughs> to the model. Uh, people, because, well, the fruit, that words and actions that come out here and the thorns that come out here, are they done in your closet? No, they're usually done in a relationship and it doesn't look pretty, okay? Um, we just introduced them really, really quick. They'll be on the subject of next week, okay? And the examples that we look at next week. So a little bit more there, but I've hidden something. The dot behind screen number one is three words. That's all you need to know for now. Whole books can be written on this. I'll show you. Okay? There's only three ways that you can do things when you're messing up in relationship. Number one, you can move towards people because they're standing in your way. So what did little Timmy do last week? He lied. So what category is that? He moved towards his mother to manipulate her with lies. Well, everything else is in there. There's flattery, there's lies, there's threats. Okay, you got it? I'm going to hold my breath till I die. <laughs> Your kids ever do that? I tried it when I was five. I couldn't make it past 34 seconds, I think. But anyway, I'm still here. So, uh, a way to avoid. Men, men. I mean, women can do this too. But men, men, be grieved by the fact. Cold shoulder is one of the most evil things you can do. Okay, falls right here. Number three is against. I'm going to punish you because you're standing in my way of the swimming pool or whatever it is. Okay? I'm going to do these three things until you get out of my way or help and I get what I want because Jesus doesn't satisfy. So that's all you need to know right now. It's going to be the subject of next week and I'll just show you right in. There's two bucks. Two really, really good books. And you'll notice this, this one is by Tim Blaine and Dave Tripp. Well, surprise, they're the ones who wrote the whole book on three trees. The very next year they come out with relationships. They just didn't bother to put it on the graph. They did put the uh, feedback loop, remember? Consequences, good and bad. Uh, I added this and then one other thing, just so that we finish off the model. And we have not discussed this either. Lord willing, it'll be the subject of two weeks from now. You got it? There's a method to my madness here, at least a little bit here. And the other one here is refuge. Another big theme of the Bible is when things get really bad, where do you run? So how do you relate to people? Where do you run for refuge? Big theme. When it gets really, really bad, you end up with addictions and depression. On the other side, you have the castle. You have those wonderful texts of Psalms, you know, the name of the Lord is like a strong tower. Safe as he runs therein. But to unpack those themes is a richness that we want to look at because it helps us one another in caring for souls. So that's a little bit of where we've been and where we're going. And just, just for fun, I, I've created my own forms. I've, I've taken the, I've taken the, the, the components, the little icons, if you will, and kind of put them in logical order. And I've made a sheet that looks like that. So I want to show you that because we're going to use it today, tomorrow, I mean next week, excuse me, and the week after that. And basically I've just put them in logical order. Logical order in the way that we basically talk to somebody. So if you sat down with little uh, Timmy and said, listen, what's happening? And he would put 
what do we put at the top? The pool and the storm and mummy and her rules, right? And we, we kind of filled this in. We only did the right-hand side. But this is kind of the logical order. And the other thing we say about a model is not everything there is applicable. But it's there to help you remember ask the question. Okay? So basically, now we're going to come to our first slide here today in this. Our goal now today is to unpack the most central thing of all. That's the cross. Uh, Paul Tripp, I'll never forget the class, he says, you know what you can't do? You can't run from the thorn right to the fruit tree and simply do it because you're told. Okay? You've got to go through the cross. Going from one to the other, and he picks up this big industrial stapler, plastic fruit, and he goes over to the board and goes, plastic fruit. Fruit stapling. You can't do it. Okay. Anyway, you've got to go through the heart. So we're going to ask questions like, how does Jesus lead us to a joy-based repentance where we hate the sin and not loathe ourselves? Remember how I showed you that book on gentle and lowly? Jesus, our own failures, only draw us closer to him. They don't repel him. He's close, and he forgives. We have, in First John, a Lord who, if we call for forgiveness, he willingly gives. <coughs> the right-hand side from the cross looks here and says, what has enticed me away from satisfaction in Christ? Where have I been de deceived? That's the function of temptation that we see in James 1. Enticed and deceived. The deception always has to do with God. Eden, right? Apple? God's holding out on you. What is it that it is doing to my life and my relationship with God? Because I'm called in his image to worship him. What is it doing in my life with others? What is it doing to me? Because sin ultimately and immediately destroys worship. It ultimately will destroy your relationships and ultimately will destroy you. It costs the Son of God his life to rescue you. And you need nothing less than a rescue. So the deep motivational drives are all Godward. They're looking for contentment in the creation that you can only find in the Creator. And so, therefore, of course, we have bad behavior, and our counseling and one anothering should aim to change behavior, but through heart change. So there's always a vertical dimension, always a vertical dimension, to be resolved before a horizontal one. That's why when Hebrews 4 says we can run to Jesus and find what? Mercy and grace, because if you don't understand why you need mercy and grace, then you don't understand mercy and grace, and you don't understand temptation. So in marriage counseling, we'll go like, well, do they need better you know, uh, relational skills? Uh, understand how to better parent? Yes, not less, but this vertical has to be the first, and it propels and models the motive and the kindness of the fruit of the Spirit in relationship. What has drawn me away. Lord, prone to wander. Lord, I know it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. That's something we have to help each other do. 
what we're doing here from the vintage of the cross, it looks at the thorns and says, I want you to come to a repentance, a turning, a joyful repentance back to the joy of your salvation, Psalm 51. But it's going to be an intelligent one. You want to talk to the four-year-old and the 44-year-old or what captured his heart, the swimming pool or your job or anything else is taking you away from Christ and ruin your relationships. Listen, when you're messed up in your relationships, is number one indication you're messed up with God. Do you see that? And I ask the people, how much do you pray? Not much. Do you going to church? Not much. Are you in the word? Not much. So all sorts of things are missing from that side. You know where we're going here? So we're talking about intelligent repentance. At the bottom is your genuine faith in Christ. You, you want to bring a person to the point of saying, listen, Galatians 2.20, I'm crucified with Christ and no longer live, but Christ lives in me, and the life I now live in this flesh, I live by faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. There are truths about the person and work of Christ, truths. Now, here's a word, not a Greek word, an English word, indicatives. Indicatives means truths about Christ, his person and work. Those indicatives are the foundation for every command he gives to us. This side is his command, and it's all based on him. Everything Jesus asks you to do, he gives you a good reason to do it. And that's our focus today. He wants a genuine faith. Uh, Ephesians 4, 28. The thief should stop stealing. Where's that on the chart? Right here, right? Then if Paul immediately goes in the latter part of the verse and says, and work hard to give to those people who have need. Right? Can you go from here to here? Paul Tripp says, no, you go through here. And Paul doesn't unpack that. You know why? He did it in chapter 1, 2, and 3. Do you see that? Do you see that? So it's so interesting. Jesus goes to Zacchaeus' house. You know him beforehand over here. He's a swindler and a liar and a thief and all sorts of other things. He's the worst of the worst. He's chief tax collector and publican. People hate him. And when Jesus comes out, salvation has come to this house and the fruits of repentance come out. What happened inside? I'd love to know. I'd like to have that recording. I'd post it next week. Much better message in mind. Whatever Jesus was saying to him, well, Jesus hinted at it. Salvation, faith of Abraham. You know, I came to find the lost. Don't you think Jesus talked to him about how he was lost? Yeah, yeah. So you have intelligent repentance, genuine faith, specific obedience. That's an example of specific obedience. What does the corresponding thorn see in its fruit? Happy work to give others and relieve their pain. Do you see that? So, what you have here is the scripture in the New Testament three times saying, put off, put on, put off, put on. I believe, and would demonstrate it, <laughs> that there's always a put on fruit and obedience to every put off. That counseling doesn't end when you simply manage sin. Right? No. There's a specific obedience on every side. Put off, put on, indicatives, imperatives, works of the flesh over here, fruit of the spirit. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at two examples today in a video if we have time. And in these two examples, we're especially focusing in on how the person and work of Christ or the indicatives of the truth of him motivate and direct change away from this to this in these examples.
And then, Lord willing, next week, we'll look at refuge uh, relationships and the week after that, refuge, and perhaps after that, look at a few nasty, terrible sins that we get caught up with called irritation and anxiety. Terrible sins, aren't they? Well, just wait. Okay, ready for example number one? I need your help here because uh, in your handout, you have this full text on your handout, and you also have it in your Bible, electronic and paper. Isn't that amazing? This is the ESV, and it's only like, uh, what is it, uh, 13 to 30, so it's only 22 verses, 23 verses. And it's an example of the wonderful counselor counseling. And you know the story already, and usually I do it in a class, I break things up into three groups. Lucy's over here with the troublemakers, and I'm here with the nice people, and, and then we leave, you know, but never mind. You know, we usually split up the class, and, and we fill out that blank form, and we come back and answer it. We can't quite do that here. So what we're going to do is walk through the story, and I think you know it already. I'm taking the liberty not to add scripture. But add bolding. That doesn't count, right? Nothing in Revelation about bolding and italics. I hope not. Well, here you go. And um, there are the key words in this story. Now, you know the story, right? This happens Easter morning. And just before this, I should mention that there is an event that happens with the 11 and all the other people and ladies. And uh, they're in Jerusalem. And the women go out and they come back excited because the tomb is empty. Oh, and we even saw angels. At that moment, these two guys leave. Think about that. This is hooey to them. We're out of here. This is crazy people. We're gone. And out they go. And so the two of them were on a village named Emmaus. And these were people, they weren't happy. They were not singing, whistle while you work. No, no, they weren't singing, climb, climb up, sunshine mountain. Faces all aglow. That was not their face. They were heading away. So I don't want to tell you the whole story, but Jesus comes alongside and does a wonderful job showing us how to one another. He starts asking, well, you know the story. They're hidden. His identity of who he is is hidden from them. That's an amazing thing right there. We'll revisit that why at the end, okay? Not that I have the final answer on it or anything. Uh, well, okay, but we'll, we'll think about that. He comes alongside with them and says, what are you talking about? And one of those important things is ask good questions. Ask good questions. Open-ended questions. Not questions that have yes, no. Don't be the Senate subcommittee. You know, where you yell at the person from the FAA or whatever saying like, this is a yes-no question. Yes-no question. Did you know this evil thing that was happening in Wuhan or whatever? Okay. Yes-no. No, 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 no. You want information. You want the opposite of that. So don't be Jim Jordan. Okay. I like the guy, but hey, that's not what we do here. Uh, open questions. And it's always funny when you think of it that Jesus never asked a question. He needed to know the information. <laughs> so he's teaching us. Is he not? He already knows the answer. He knows their hearts. But he asks these questions. So what we're going to do here, it comes along, and what we want to do, flip your page, well, listen, don't, don't do this. There's the full answer. You've got a copy of that? Don't look at it yet, okay? Unless you really want to cheat, and I, I won't look, okay? But what we're going to do here is unpack each part of three trees, right-hand side and the left-hand side of Jesus' counsel. 
And these verses are almost split equally, the 22, 23 verses between his diagnosis and how he counsels these people. So the full answer is there, but try to avoid looking at them. And if we had a class, we'd be breaking up here, as I said. But anyway, the heat. The heat. Now, this is complex if you've not read the whole text and thought about it here. But what are the factors? Now, remember the story last week with, with Timmy and the swimming pool. The factors were everything that had to be up in the heat for the temptation to happen. And the temptation is here is that they disbelieve that Jesus is the Messiah. They're completely depressed. They've left their walk on the wrong way. You understand? So what led to that? What has to be at the top for that to make sense and that ha to happen? So in the case of Timmy, pool, storm, Mommy and their rules, okay? So here, I got about four things. This is a little bit difficult here, but wanna name one or two and then I'll show all four. Give you a chance to say, what is the setting that led to their depression? Who have they been with? Christ. Yeah, and it says so right in the text there, I can't show both screens at the same time, yes. Jesus of Nazareth, mighty in word and deed before God and men. Wow. Now, that's a one-sentence conclusion from what? What time period? How many years? Yeah, three years, okay? And then yet right in the middle of this text, they start talking about things that happen these days. They look at Jesus and say, are you the only person in the universe that doesn't know what's happened these days? Is your phone out of juice? Don't you have Instagram? Like, what? You don't know? Like, get real, okay? Uh, so they said these days. What do you think that time period refers to? Death and burial. Death and burial. Mm, so Friday, Saturday, Sunday. This is Sunday morning. How many would say, well, how long have they been in Jerusalem? How many days? Well, seven, or, seven or eight, likely, right? What happened the week before? He came in victoriously. Wow! Hosanna! Right? Hosanna! What was their mood that day? <laughs> yes! Right? What is their mood now? As they say, so low they can reach up and touch bottom, Okay? The depth of the depth is important to understand because of the heights of the heights and how quickly it went one from one to the other. Do you, do you agree? So we're going to look at a couple of things here. It's always far better to do this in a group and get all four out of you. But Holy Week, these days, and I would say since Palm Sunday, so these days. This is almost basically in the order of what happened. Verse 19, with Jesus three years. What are the key words? A prophet mighty indeed in word. So they observed him for three years. Number three, chief priests and rulers. The one condemned, the other crucified. Finally, the other disciples. They make their appearance at the beginning and the end. It's interesting. Well, that's what I have. So now what we're going to do is look at the thorns and the internal thorns. Now the external thorns 
words and actions, remember, they're visible, just like the fruit is visible, comes from inside, love, joy, peace, and so forth, but outside actions and words. Their actions and words here, I hope you agree, are that they are speaking to, before Jesus shows up, they're speaking to each other. What kind of counsel are they giving each other? Oh, cheer up, class. Oh, you cheer up, Mark. Are you feeling better? Not quite. Cheer me up some more. No, they aren't. They're not, they're not doing anything of the kind. Okay? They fit the model of Psalm 1, bad counsel. Okay? They're, they're just like this, like this. And if you want to really put it on, it's like bad feedback loops. The longer they walk along that road, the, the more depressed they are because they're feeding on each other's depression. I really wanted it to happen. I wanted it more than you. Okay, you got the idea. So, okay, actions. Walking in the wrong direction and looking sad. But it's so stunning that when Jesus comes by and says, what things, you know, what are you talking about? They are absolutely stunned. And simply, Luke records that they stopped and looked at him. They were astounded for a lot of reasons. Why should he care? Is he the secret police? Sent from the Sanhedrin. We don't know this guy. We want to see his badge. Or lack of you got you got the idea. Okay, no, I don't do that. Uh, internal thorns. I've got despair, hopelessness, uh, a sinful one, and the reason will become apparent soon because Jesus sharply rebukes them. It's a newthetic moment here. Okay. It's not a warning. It's not right. They should be back there. They shouldn't be here. And their depression and their feet and actions flow out of a heart that has a sinful despair because it's based on a superficial idol that's being threatened. Despair. Deeper in the light of Palm Sunday. We've made that point already. So here, we're going to look at three things. People, and I said... Uh, okay, we haven't really kind of fleshed that out, but remember, toward, to manipulate, a way to avoid, and against to punish. What's, which one of those three are they manifesting? Don't take rocket science. Avoid. avoid. Yeah, right. Very, very good. Whole books are written on this. Really, really cool stuff, but that's all we need to do right now. And we will talk about this. Bad feedback loops. Uh, bad feedback loops. When the relational and the relief patterns only add to the heat. That's what a bad feedback loop is. So they're shutting out the other brothers. These two only reinforce each other's despair. So I think there's a bad feedback loop. I kind of just discussed it. As they keep talking, the heat only gets worse and their despair gets worse. Do you see that? They're just feeding each other's despair. What is that ruling the heart? The superficial idol, which serves a deep motivational drive. What is it? Well, what is it? It's actually in the text. Basically, when you're counseling somebody, and you say, you want to know their, their superficial idol, you'd come up to Timmy and say, finish the sentence, Timothy. I would be happy if. And he would instantly say, I can get back in the pool. Right? Right. So if you said to these people, what is your hope? What would make you happy? It's right in the text. They actually use the word, we had hoped. And what came after those words? That Jesus, what? Be the one who, what? You can look at the text. 
redeem Israel. Will Jesus redeem Israel? But not the way they thought, right? Jesus goes to counsel them, so we have to run ahead. Okay, it's a good desire, good desire. It's the same one posed to Jesus on the third temptation. Look at the nations of the world. They're all mine, and they can be yours, Jesus. Just bow one knee to me. No cross, no death, no crucifixion, no resurrection. No stupid disciples for thousands of years. Okay? That might have been a temptation. Do you think of it? Paul said, Jesus, you know, his, his patience with him was a model for all believers, for patience. Jesus' patience with him persecuting Christians. Think about that one for a while. Um, anyway, so what you want is you want something without the cost. So what I have here is this, and I want you to think about it. We can talk about it more in the future. The desire is plainly right in the text. We had hope, redemption of Israel. Jesus King, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. But remember, temptation has two things, an enticement and a belief. And here, the enticement is, I want that good thing without suffering. Okay? You see, that... I need my wife here. You know, I just do stupider things faster. Um, No, that's coffee. I forgot. They left, I think, when the news of the resurrection came. The resurrection was not their problem. The crucifixion was. Because their entire view of the Old Testament was the Messiah doesn't suffer. He just comes and reigns. So they were willingly blind through all their upbringing and three years with Jesus because one thing they didn't want to see in the text, a suffering Messiah. Because you know what that means? Is we don't benefit from his reigning and worse, we'll have to suffer too. Do you see the consequences here? Yeah, yeah. They were out of there, I think, in the morning because that was the last straw. This hooey business about resurrection is crazy. If Jesus died, he's not the Messiah. And if he's not the Messiah, we're out of here. And we are hopeless. And we're despairing. That is power and control. Not directly. They wanted Jesus to have power and control. But that power and control of Jesus reigning would be everything of bliss to them. Do you see that? And it means, well, it means this. If you don't see Jesus right, you don't get salvation right. You don't see salvation right, you don't get the Christian life right. Okay? First thing you experience the desert, you'll go like, no, we're supposed to be in the promised land. No, you're in the desert. And you're not there by accident. And you're not alone. So, how does Jesus counsel them? Well, this is a new setting moment, okay? He really does come alongside. And the rebuke is sharp and deserved. Okay, you can read it right in the text. Oh, you who are so slow to believe everything. So they believed something, but they didn't believe everything because they didn't want to. Something in their heart made them spiritually blind. Spiritually blind to a suffering Messiah and a suffering Jesus. Did you see that? So they had a good desire, but they're deceived by believing that the Messiah would not suffer. Jesus opened their Old Testament to them, showing suffering and then glory. I would have loved to have a, another recorder there again, too. Thank you. Uh, to know that message, just like the one in Zacchaeus' kitchen over uh, tacos, right? What else do you have with a chief 
Never mind. Okay. See if a tax collector on a Sunday afternoon. Okay, so what you have here is I would have loved to know that text. And uh, when I have a class, I, I usually have fun saying, okay, let's pull out a few of the texts that Jesus would have gone to. Well, Isaiah and other texts come to mind. But basically, their heart wants a good thing, but they want this, and it so blinds them. Why did Jesus hide their, his identity? Because the heart change has to come from the word, not a great display of power. Can you imagine them there running into a phone booth and coming out with super savior, right? Like, and they go like, wow! And they run back to, to Jerusalem. And the first time things happen bad in their Christian life, they still have the same heart because it's not been changed. Do you see that? Yeah, it has to be through the word. So, the, yeah, we will make applications some other time <laughs> some of these things here. Okay, so here, what is the internal fruit? The literal and figurative eyes were open to see Jesus as he really was. Hearts burned within them, budding love, joy, peace, and hope. Right? Yeah. Right. And then they say, come on, come on, sit with us, sit with us. And he takes the, the bread here and breaks it. This is my body. And at that moment, their eyes are convinced of everything they've heard from the Old Testament. And their heart is changed. And then Jesus is gone. And so are they. At that moment, Luke says, up they go. Now, what time would have this been? It would have been 9.30 or something. They, if they really hiked it and didn't order Exojet or whatever you fly for, you know. <laughs> no, you fly for a company, right? They don't jet it back to Jerusalem. They get there. So they're probably walking at about 10.30, 11.30, right? Who speaks first? Now, I don't want to make overly make something about this, but when they walk in the door, what's the sinful desire or tendency or temptation of those who were there? Oh, look at Cleopas and his friend. <laughs> the guys that walked out and half calling us hooey this morning. They're back. Oh, okay. <laughs> they can sit over here for a while. We'll hear their story. It better be good. Who speaks first? Don't look at the text. Who speaks first? They do. I, I, I think that's kind of fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Any hesitation to bring these crazy two guys back? No. Immediately. Jesus is risen. Yeah. Yes. Okay? And then they tell him them what happened on the road. Think about that. I, I think that's significant. Don't want to make anything more of it than that. But here we go. Uh, let's look at the last three things there, going from the bottom upward, because we're on the left-hand side of the graph. The relational trend, rather than avoiding, they hike back. So you see that's completely opposite. Put off, put on. You got it? So return to fellowship for mutual advocation. And the mutual advocation is the last sentence of the story, where I said, I think who speaks first is kind of instructive. But it's mutual. And the story can't end without that. Do you see that? That's the Spirit teaching us what one another looks like in the body of Christ. That's how we handle wayward brothers coming back. Did I miss something there? Yeah, okay. The eyes of the heart to see um, Christ correctly, and therefore the entire world, their rest, their rest, their refuge. No fear. 
By the way, um, I, I think I skipped the, 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 the castle on the, the outbound. I, I usually have it saying not applicable. And I was teaching in India, and they said, no, 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 I, I think there's something there. You know, the bad castle, you know, for refuge. And they said, you know, they, they could be fleeing the police. And, well, there's nothing in the text that they're going to run to the casino in Emmaus or the bar in Emmaus or any of that for sinful relief. Okay? But you could simply ask the question, why are you going to Emmaus? It could be as simple as what's well, where we, we live. Okay? But it could be like we know a cave there to hide out for 60 days. Okay? And then that would make that sinful refuge. You, you see that? But here, they're back to the rest in the kingdom of the king. The final good feedback loops. Hearing the news from those in Jerusalem only increased their joy and therefore strength to obey. So that's an example. And I hope you see that it fits wonderfully right on three trees. Do you see that? Now, what so many of the other groups like uh, Overseas Instruction and Counseling do, what they stop here and they hand out for two days and they have everybody in their group do about 16 of these from all over the Bible. And I usually do four or five. But, well, we can't do that. But I'm going to give you another one today. For sake of time, we're not going to do every single piece here, but I want to tell you the story. This story, and it's a story I hope you know. And it's also in your handouts here so you can follow. And it's the story of, found in Second Kings, Chapter 5. Now, I want to tell you the story, but in 2 Kings chapter 5, you have the first three verses there. It's one of my favorite chapters from the Old Testament. I've got to introduce you to it just briefly. Number one, there are three pairs of individuals. Let's dispense with the lousy players that don't make much in this movie. That kind of spells, I'm, I'm kind of speaking to the, well, you got the idea. <laughs> In this chapter, you have two kings. And even though they're the kings, they're really bit players here. They're in and out of the scene with nothing to say and nothing to contribute. And they're both, oh, okay. King of Abraham, most powerful man in the world. And the king of Judah. He's a namby-pamby milk dose, but we won't talk about him because we're not going to look at this whole chapter. The second pairing of people are the two most important people in the chapter. And it is Naaman, the king's right-hand person in Syria. He's the head of the army. He is ostensibly the second most powerful person in the world. Got it? Okay. And matched with him, and the driving part of this, this chapter is Elisha, who has taken over the mantle of prophet from Elijah. So, wonderful guy. And the main story is that story, but wait, there's more. One more coupling or pairing of people. Two servants. They begin the chapter and they end the chapter. Let's look at the end. This dear guy's name is Gehazi. He's a servant in Elisha's quarter. He shovels manure, I think, okay? And at the end, the leprosy goes on him. He schemes lying and cheating, and the chapter ends. It's kind of interesting story. Kind of interesting one to end the chapter, but it begins with another servant. We don't even know her name, and she was a little girl. It's her story we're gonna tell. Verse number one. And in typical kind of Old Testament Hebrew fashion, it kind of introduces the whole plot in three verses, and then we're going to tell the story of what's going on here. Number one. Now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. 
He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. So now there's number, number three. This whole chapter of three is here. He gives, we already had three pairings, right? So the Lord gives three gifts that, to Naaman. Number one, success. Now this means success in battle. He's a wicked man in a wicked country with a wicked king. Some people are bothered by that. Understand that the Lord is sovereign in all his work, even over the responsible moral people who sin against him and sin against other people. You understand that? If you don't get chapter one, you don't have a theology of any hope whatsoever. Understand that. Number two, he gives them leprosy. Well, now you're starting to feel a little bit better. I do. So we think it's leprosy, some sort of skin disease. You know, these eyes and nose kind of start falling off into a soup or whatever. It clearly is a situation where he can't enjoy the accolades of his people. He's a certified bona fide, and he can't go outside and enjoy any of it because he can't be seen because his visage is so bad. So, gift number three. God gives him a little girl. Now, bands of soldiers from Abraham had gone out to take captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. Stop right here. Listen, this is an evil nation, and before they conquer uh, countries, they keep them in line through terror. It works. So every once in a while, Naaman was in charge of sending these bands out. Hey, listen, pillage and loot and bring back some cattle, and oh, by the way, my wife wants a servant. Well, how old? Well, listen, old enough to put in a good day's work, young enough not to kick this poor soldier who has to bring her back and tear out his hair and all that kind of stuff. So you get the age? You get the age range here? This is terror. This is your own worst nightmare. Now, at that moment, Naaman would say, nope, I gave that girl to my wife. God says, no, I gave that girl to you. Now, we will come back to that point at the very, very end. Because if point number one bothers you, this one bothers you too. So, young girl. Several years interlude. Virtually all commentators say that. Do you know why? From a basic point of view. Verse number three, she's speaking. Now, let's just say the obvious here. She would not have known the language. Clearly, completely different one. So multiple years have gone by, and she's learned the language, but she's learned far more than that. And she's speaking. Another list of three. Three good reasons why she shouldn't be even speaking. Number one, she's a foreigner. Number two, she's a slave. And half the room here could at least shout out what number three is. She's a, a woman. Or she's still a girl. Okay? Unbelievable that she's speaking. So if you think that's something, you ain't heard nothing yet because what she says is incredible. She says, well, one day she must have clearly been tasked to go out and serve something for Mrs. Naaman and she saw Master Naaman. And likely on that day, the skin was falling into the soup, and just her heart just went out. And she says to Mrs. Naaman, that my master would know that there's a prophet in Samaria, and he would cure him of his leprosy. 
Now, that's an astounding statement for a lot of reasons. Jesus later, recorded by Luke, said that there was many leopards in Samaria and Israel at the time of Naaman. None of them were cured. None of them were cured. Let that sink in. None of them were cured. So he didn't walk in one day and say, Hey, Naaman, Mrs. Naaman, tell Master Naaman, I just read this on the feed. People by the hundreds are coming to Jerusalem to be healed by Elisha. You know, hook up the camels, charge them up, and hike out of town. You can get healed there. Maybe Catherine Coleman will be there too. I don't know, but, you know, go. No, absolutely not. But where in the world did this compassion come from? So what we want to do is throw up three trees here, just for fun of it. Not the chart, but the, the original trees. And say, what is the heat here that she is suffering? The incipient were thorns and the deep motivational drives that are, are being attacked. Now listen, all of us want all three deep motivational drives all the time. We want comfort. We want pleasure. We want security. We want to know what our identity is. We want some sort of sense of justice and purpose and meaning. We want all three all the time. And this girl has all three attacked at once. So what you have here is how does she put off and put on what is being blows, blows. How come there is no fear, there's no anger and despair, but that must have been her temptation. What would be the first thing as she's riding back that horse and then throwing into the uh, slave quarters? Will they hurt me? Will they beat me? Will they kill me? I mean, you're dragged off the street, literally. Fear. And maybe when that subsides after a bit, then number two kicks in. And especially in the slave quarters where all the other ones go like, I saw a name in today, I hope he rots in. Well, you know the story, right? If I ever got out of here, I would strike. You got the idea? So bad counsel to her ears all the time. What's our calendar look like for next year and the year after and the year after and the year after? Zero. Zero. Despair. And yet, she didn't have angry words, and she didn't sabotage her service either. On the contrary, all in, though all of these things were being attacked, she was able to, way over on this side, in verse 3, kind words and faithful service. And I really think the kind words came out of probably months and months and months of kind service. Don't you agree? I mean, how else should she have been allowed to speak? What happened between here and here and here? Because angry people, fearful people don't speak if you, even if they have an opportunity. Angry people are not kind and gentle to people who are their worst enemy. People who have no hope don't give hope because they don't have any. And yet she did all three. So what you had to do is you had to have an answer for those three things in the Lord that she knew to produce that. Wow. What would she have had? Did she yell at the soldier, hey, I don't need much, but I need my MacArthur Study Bible. Can I run back? It's electronic. I can solar. You know, never mind. You know, you got the idea. No, no, she didn't. 
She didn't. But she had the word hidden right here. So what kind of self-counsel was she able to give here that would produce that kind of service and words and gracious words? Well, there are didactic passages of the Bible and there are narrative passages. So this is an important thing to keep in mind here. When you're one anothering and counseling, you use the scripture wisely and richly. So think of two categories here. Uh, to, to fit the theme of three, I would have loved to have three. Uh, there's just eight. Okay, so there's didactic and there's narrative passages. Didactic pa 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 um, passages. Well, this is not in the text, but I'll tell you, a guy named Peter, writing to exiles, sojourners, and foreigners in the Mediterranean area who are going to be suffering for Christ. First Peter chapter 3. What psalm does he immediately go to and extensively quote from? Psalm 34. Psalm 34 is one of the psalms of ascent. She would have sung it every single year with her parents, if not more. It's a psalm, acrostic one, so each verse begins with the letter of a Hebrew alphabet because it was easy for them to memorize. She would have known Psalm 34 in every bit as much as Peter did, and it's the first thing from his mind when he writes to sojourners and exiles. Sound familiar? Who is she? On her bed crying at night, the first text I think would have come is Psalm 34. And we look at Psalm 34, and what do we find in Psalm 34? Well, this is where we end up going, but jump ahead, because I couldn't put this in order. Uh, it's in your handout, and if you want to turn to this one, I think it's worth turning to right now and follow. You have a complete full-page copy of this in your handout, and it is Psalm 34 on the left-hand side, and I'm dissecting it into indicatives and imperatives. So there's a big lesson here. But on the left-hand side is verses 7 through 11, and it deals with, guess what? It deals with fear. Isn't that amazing? And then verses 12 through 16 deals with anger. And what can you imagine 17 through 19 deals with? Well, we only have one left, right? Just there. Do you think Jesus knows our hearts? He does. Now, what I've done here on the left, both for illustration for this story, but also for you, is how you can dissect a passage here, New Testament, old one, whatever. So what I've done on the left-hand side, the red words, sort of orangey words, are the ones that relate to indicatives. Who is your God, and what does he promise to do for those who love him? And the underlying words are the imperatives. And the imperatives are driven off the indicative. Since God is this to you and promises this for you, then you can do this, the imperative side. Now just look at that left side of the text. You see the red and the underline, the red and the underline. They're all kind of interspersed with each other, right? I think that's amazing. So in the center at the top here, let me summarize the words in orange. Your God promises to be and do what? Protect you give good blessings, ultimately deliver you in and from trouble. Since that is true, you can do this. Taste, see, fear, 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 fear. God. Do you see the antidote to fearing man? Is fearing God. Four times. Listen, learn, run to him as refuge. The middle one here. Let's look at this and just observe the underlying 
text here. Desires life, seek good, keep your tongue, do good, turn away, seek peace. Those are all imperatives. And guess what? We haven't read a single word of indicative yet. This is kind of amazing. All the indicatives come afterwards. So let's look at the imperatives because they come first. Do this. And it sounds like Ephesians 4. Listen, on your bed, be angry and don't sin. Don't let the sun go down. You deal with it. You deal with it. So the psalmist here wants to immediately come to you and say, listen, deal with it. And it's not anger management. It's anger replacement because of this as being true. Okay, so keep your tongue. Turn away. Desire life. Seek good. Seek peace. Pursue good. It sounds like chapters in Romans, doesn't it? Yeah, I think so. Do good. Compare that to a bunch of other texts in the New Testament. Why? Why can you do this? Because God's eyes, ear, face are against those who do evil. Now, on the cross, God's eyes, ears, and face was against you. You were his enemy. Christ bore the wrath. He saves you from himself. He saves you by himself. And he saves you for himself. And here what you have there is a picture pre-cross of God's judgment and deliverance of mercy and grace. Last, 17 through 19, on despair. What is notable when you look on the left-hand side, when you look at the orange words and the underlined words? What do you notice immediately? There are no underlined words. I think that's interesting. God promises to be and do what? He does here. He will deliver. He is near. He always saves. And again, he repeats, he will deliver. That's hope. What is the imperative? Believe it. Simply believe it. Anchor your soul there. The anchor with a great picture of the New Testament age of of faith. You're still on the boat. The storms are still there. But your anchor is here. Can you imagine her crying herself to sleep going through these texts? I think she did. But then there's more. There are, whoops, let me go back up to this. Wrong way. Uh, Let's go back to what I was talking about. There are the passages. So on her bed crying at night, she would say, yes, yes, all that is true. But as he promised it and he said he would do it, has he proven that he's done it? Yes, yes. I'm slavery. I'm in slavery. Does God, has he proved his faithfulness to his people in slavery? Yes, it's the exodus. Wow! You know, the plagues, and then then through the the Red Sea, and then into the desert, and all those wonderful things. And God heard his people, all one million and something of them. And and then maybe she had a little bit of a doubt. Does God just hear little old me? Little old me. Genesis 15, 20, she probably thought, ah. But there's another story of a young man who was just like me, wronged, dragged off into slavery. And at the end of the story, so she's going through it in her mind. At the end of the story, as Joseph's brothers come down, I'm assuming you know the story, right? And he comes down and says, you meant it for evil. God meant it for good. 
You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. And on her bed, she cries, Naaman meant it for evil. God means it for good. Anyway, one day, she wakes up. She looks at her slave clothes, and she willingly puts them on. Because she's free. Not to serve Mrs. Naaman or Master Naaman, but to serve the living God, because she's free. Nothing like the chains of fear, anger, despair, oh, and then we could keep on going. Regret, bitterness, malice, just keep on going down the list. They're all chains. They're all chains. And Jesus means to break the chains. That is broken. And she could serve the living God. So self-counsel led the girl to true freedom and willingness to serve the living God. Not Naaman or his wife. Okay. What does, why does God treat his children this way? Uh, a couple of years ago, I'll end with this. A couple of years ago, I was teaching the entire chapter of First Life. So we walked through the whole story of Naaman. It's wonderful how the Lord you know, humbles him. He was such a proud man, arrogant man, rage of, of anger. And how the Lord changed his heart, made him a worshiper of Jehovah. And then the story about Gehazi at the end. So I was going through the whole thing. And when I was all done, one woman came up. She was late 50s, early 60s, but she hadn't been a Christian long. She came up and said, oh, I love that whole theory. That was cool, but there were parts I didn't like. I said, well, can I guess? She says, yeah, I don't like the way God treats his children. I can't get over him giving this little girl to Naaman no matter how good the outcome came. And I said, well, let's turn to Philippians chapter 2 and say this. This is the way he treated his son. He left heaven, the better Jerusalem, to earth, a very, very dark place. He came to his own, and his own rejected him. And he willingly took on slave clothes you. Became obedient to the Father for you, to save you. And the text at the beginning of Philippians 2 has these indicatives. Do you have any comfort in Christ? Parakaleo here? Koinonia, participation in the Spirit, any encouragement, any affection of love? That word is bowels of mercy from him. Do you have any of these things? And the whole thing is in a great construction that says, yes, you have all those things. Then, have this mind among you. He emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, likeness of man, being found in him, humble, becoming obedient to the cross, and that's what the Lord calls you to. Do you see that? Yes, the Lord does treat his children like that. And grace is that beautiful. Grace is that good. I have a four-minute video. Is it okay? Short, very short testimony here. I have several things. Living with 
a lot of people are either afraid of me or very uncomfortable to be around and that hurts me because I want to be everybody's friend and I can't help the fact that I have CP. My name is Russell Ono Turner and I live in Central Austin. Go long on. <laughs> Some of the others that I've with is I got to do of that a young person will never have to do that. Call around on the carpet every day. Sometimes it wells on my body. I lose a comfortable vibe that is a car and on and I peck on the cave just like a chicken. I get around town in my electric wheelchair. It allows me freedom to get around on my own. The other thing is loneliness. I am my own gated enemy with I am love to my loneliness. See that? Jesus means everything for me. Without Jesus, I know I would have committed suicide by now because life is not what it without Jesus. All times come every day. Most of the time, I try to not them down because they got for to change my life in a great way that I will never ultimately know. Worship is my life. God has created me to worship. And Jesus played the ultimate path and if I don't totally worship him, it's like I don't appreciate it's dying from me and that is so powerful. One day I will be in eternity with God. 
just like the young girl. The heat is almost unimaginable. But his life is worship. Now, what the video doesn't show is that he was a wonderful church with a great one another in counseling ministry, Austin Stone Church, who gave me permission to dub this into French and, and Karundi and Serbian, which is really, really cool. What's missing from this video is the one anothering that helps them beat down loneliness. And that's another story. And I actually wish they actually did another video. Uh, but his testimony, I think, is worth, worth saying. Jesus is worth it. His grace is sufficient. And one of the things, I'll leave it with this, one of the ways the scripture teaches is from the, from the greater to the lesser. And if grace is sufficient for them, it's sufficient for you. Amen. This message was produced by the New Testament Reformation Fellowship, reforming today's church with New Testament church practices. Permission is hereby granted for you to reproduce this message. You can find us on the web at www.ntrf.org. May God bless you as you seek to follow Him in complete obedience to His Word. May your faith in the Lord Jesus be strengthened and your daily walk with Him deepened.